There's an FOMC meeting this week, and it looks like the Fed is going to pause, causing many people to believe that soft landing is imminent and we're going to just randomly re-enter a raging bull market. But there's a lot of other things to look at besides just a potential pause, which of course is not a pivot. We're going to dig into everything macro. It's Macro Monday on a Tuesday. Today, I've got James Lavish and Dave Weisberger joining. As one of you said in the comments, Mike McGlone is Mike McGon this week, but we will have him back next week, guys. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and hit that like button. It's been a long week away. I went around the world and back. And I have to tell you that it's a very good thing I did because I was super depressed about crypto in the United States. And then I went to Asia, where there is a never-ending bull market. Nobody cares about the United States. Nobody cares about our regulators. Conferences are absolutely massive. And it's like Crypto Coachella over there. Crypto Palooza, if you will. Literally Token 2049, a conference that I just attended in Singapore. You might remember last year, I went from Mainnet in New York City, which was one of the more depressing conferences I've ever been to a year ago because all anyone wanted to talk about was regulation and crackdowns. And I understand because it's brutal in the United States. And then I went over there and it was this insane conference, exciting, over 3,000 people. Well, this year I went again and it was over 10,000 people. Went from one floor to three floors, had a thousand exhibitors there, a thousand. And unlike the last conference I went to in the United States, those exhibitors were not just lawyers and accountants. At consensus this year when I went, it was literally half lawyers and accountants at the booths. Absolutely depressing. But important to know, guys, this industry is alive and well on the other side of the world. And sadly, those of us in the United States are currently just missing out. Now that I've gone on that rampage, I'm going to go ahead and bring on James and Dave. No McGlone today, but we'll have him next week. Guys, I'm glad we're able to do this on a uh, Taco Tuesday again, James, I think, as you as, as you put it in, in a tweet. I, I want to show you guys this uh, amazing statement just to get us kicked off. <laughs> a tweet that I just saw this morning. Well, here, let me give it to you. Yellen says, soft landing scenario can withstand risks from auto strike, government shutdown threat, student loan repayment resumption. And as I said here, Yellen says nothing will change her narrative no matter what because she will get fired. She, I mean... James, you and I were just talking about this before. I'll let you go first. She, she literally says there's nothing in the world that can stop the soft landing. It's it's just happening, no matter what. Because it's the narrative, man. You gotta you gotta stick with the narrative. And uh they'll say soft landing all the way until we drive this economy into the ground. We spike unemployment. You know, we're we're stat we're right now we're staring down stagflation. She didn't even talk about oil prices approaching a hundred dollars. You know, we're at Europe just raised rates in in the face of economic slowdown. Like the central bankers, they're just they they have to keep the narrative and they will drive the economy into the uh, into the ground because they 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 have to in order to keep inflation in check and, and keep confidence in their currencies, period. 
It's uh, it, and she needs to, you know, keep that narrative because if you noticed or didn't notice the treasury borrowed another trillion dollars this year or this, this last month, basically 33 trillion, we crossed it. So if you, if you look at the uh, end of June or the, yeah, the, uh, the end of June, I believe it was 32.3 trillion. So we, we, we borrowed a trillion dollars since, since June. So uh, they have to keep the narrative period because they have to keep borrowing period. So they have to, they have to keep the confidence in the currency in order to, uh, to issue this debt that people are going to allow uh, the treasury to borrow dollars and pay them back with cheaper dollars. It's, it's kind of a sad state of affairs. And right before we go to Dave, you were sort of telling me before that they always get the soft landing narrative wrong. You were reading from something from a, on a walk yeah, yeah. on the show. And that's yeah. McClone's favorite person. Every morning he says, I was on a call with our head economist on a walk. <laughs> right. And so, well, but, but why do we always get this soft landing narrative wrong? You know, the uh, TLDR for the normie people like us who may not quite yeah. understand. So what Anna was saying was, and uh, she, she wrote a, a piece in, in Bloomberg, I think it was yesterday. And what she was saying is that we always get the soft landing wrong because of the probability of distributions. Dave will understand this. You know, when you have between 68 and 95% confidence and you see where those probability of distributions are for unemployment in particular. Unemployment always spikes right at the beginning of the uh, of, of a downturn, economic downturn or recession. And I've talked about this for a while, but basically what she's saying is that the problem is that economists always get it wrong because they're looking at the probability distribution and they're discounting. They're just, they're, they're every single time they, they just, uh, they ignore that fat tail of that unemployment spike of over 7%. And, and there's a big hump in there that, that shows that distribution, right? So on, on the last, on the number of recessions. So we got it wrong in 91. They got it wrong in uh, in 2001. They got it wrong in 2008. They got it wrong in 2020. Soft landing, soft landing, soft landing, soft landing. And it was not soft. It was not soft. It was not soft. It was not soft. So, and here we are again. We're right. We're And to me- It's worse this time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Dave, you tell me, but- I was just talking to my uh, to my partner on the on the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund uh, yes yesterday, um, and uh, and David and I was just I just staring at the markets and looking at the numbers and thinking it's just too complacent. Just looking at the VIX, looking at the PEs, look at it just seems just way too complacent. Everybody is just kind of like oh I think it looks like looks like we're gonna you know the Fed's gonna thread this needle and. And uh, you know we're gonna have the soft landing, and, and Goldilocks is uh, is alive and well. I mean, you tell me, what do you think? Yeah, I don't believe in, I don't believe in fairy tales as a general rule. <laughs> uh, I think that that you know I have a couple of responses. I mean, the Yellen thing. I, I will repeat a quote from uh, the, the the father of propaganda: "A lie told once remains a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth." I think that there's a lot of that going on with regard to narratives and this administration and frankly, a lot of them. But what's interesting is, and I've said this many times, I mean, Jerome Powell is is many things, but dumb is not one of them. And he absolutely understands the importance of inflationary expectations in the narrative and in controlling inflation. He does understand that he has talked about it. 
you have to parse his words more carefully, but I understand. Now, coming from someone who learned economics in the beginning of the 80s, right when Volcker was was coming, was doing what he was doing and arguing, and I, I think on the show I recounted a famous argument I had with Professor Robert Gordon, who at the time wrote the most popular intermediate macro book, gave me a B plus on an essay where I talked about inflationary expectation theory and how B, B plus or D plus well, B plus, but it wasn't an A plus, which is what it should have been because <laughs> I argued in my paper that inflation, that, that a, a that proper monetary policy could break the back of inflationary expectations. And his book argued it took, would take seven years of recession to end the, the double digit inflation that we had suffered. Uh, and, you know, I, I talked about how I managed to, to talk to him <laughs> at graduation with in front of my mentor. But let's just say that I gloated a little bit and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Powell's talked about inflationary expectations, but we have something going on that's incredibly unprecedented. And if he isn't grinding his teeth down to the gums and incre isn't incredibly pissed off at the fact that the elite, that the, that the all of the people, Senate, House and executive branch of the Democratic Party are cheerleading the UAW. And saying they have a right to demand double-digit percentage, massive double-digit percentage. Forty percent. They want forty percent pay raise. And, and, you know, and that when he's trying to dampen inflationary expectations, I am sure I feel badly for the man because he is operating alone. They are literally saying, "You got inflation, Jerome. We're going to do all the cheerleading in the economy. We're going to be profligate on the fiscal side till the cows come home. We're going to cheerlead people demanding more wages and put pressure on companies, and and never forget how much pressure the government can put on companies. So it is it is a a very interesting situation. I am sure that you know at a certain point he's going to have to throw in the towel, and you know, and, and either that." Or he'll be, he's going to engineer what is going to be not a soft landing. I mean, I'm not sure which way it will go. Another fact that's fascinating, if you look at the drawdown of the SPR reserve and chart it against the oil price, what you see is twice now, this is the second time we've had a three-month period where they actually bought back some, little teeny little bit. I mean, the numbers are, I mean, I have a chart up here. Uh, in July, uh, in June, it was at 353,000, you know, billion, whatever the number is, just 353. In July, they, they, they drew down some to 346. Since then, it creeped up to 347 and 350. And if you think that there's no relationship between a slight buyback of the strategic petroleum reserve, not, but most importantly, not, you know, releasing it into the economy and the oil price ticking up, then you're you're blind because you can look at the correlation of that chart, Scott. I, I, I it's unfortunate. You can always share your charts. So we, we, I got to teach you that move, but right down below, you just hit present. Okay, yeah, I, got, I got to put it on the stream too. Yeah, let's let's okay. do this because let's do it. I don't have a chart. Do this. Um, but let's do it. A share screen window. We're ready for it. I mean, while we're doing that, you can see oil's rally gathers momentum as Brent pops above $95 right. a barrel. So, so you look you at the chart and, yeah. and you go back. I, I don't have this and the ability to put this, but if you read we down do. here, you'll see it started the year at 371. Uh, and, you know, and, and you see what's going on, see what's going on and see that it, you know, when oil prices were coming down, it was. No, we down. can't see that, Mike, Dave. It's so small. Yeah. It's so it's small. Okay, the bottom line is. We got to get Dave, you, you, uh, you're, you're screen sized. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry hit, about hit that. Command, or can you hit, hit command plus. Yeah, I know. I know how to update. I know how to do 
Blow it up. Blow it up. Oh, here we go. Look at it. Someone said this was our uh, beautiful boomer moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know how. I was just being lazy. Sorry. There's a difference between lazy. I am a boomer, but whatever. But you can you see what's happening. You know, they're withdrawing to cut the price, withdrawing to cut the price, withdrawing to cut the price. They don't. And it, it stabilizes. They withdraw to cut the price. They don't, and it starts going up again. I mean, they're kind of caught, and you can see what's happening. They they know what they really need to do is draw down the stocks during the election. Yes, and 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 so they didn't want to, but now we're sitting with oil at ninety five, which will feed through the system. And and you know they can do inflation, ex food and energy as much as they want. It doesn't excuse my language, but it doesn't fucking matter because oil feeds through to other inflation, to pretty much everything that gets produced or transported. And so you can't do inflation X energy. You can only do inflation X measuring the explicit part of energy, but energy will always be part of inflation. So, you know, we're in a, the Fed is in a difficult situation. There's no version of reality Possible. where you can, with monetary policy, control uh, consumer inflation in a world where monetary policy for decades has explicitly tried to create asset inflation, capital substitution for labor to suppress consumer inflation, and then everything that the administration is doing on the fiscal side and policy side and regulatory side is increasing consumer inflation specifically by intent. And 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 you, you just can't, that is not something a battle that the Federal Reserve can win without causing enormous damage to the economy. That's right. I mean, we're going into an election year. There's a snowball's chance in hell that they're going to be willing to cause enormous damage to the economy. I mean, had we been in this situation six months ago, maybe, but we're, you know, the nomination deadline is two months away. And we don't know what Biden's going to do. I mean, there's a lot of speculation about it, but, that, you know, unless he has a health problem, there's no way for Democrats to enter the primaries after November, as, as I understand the DNC rules. Now, I am sure they're going to adjust the DNC rules if they decide not to run him. But it's mm -hmm. it, the election is starting in earnest uh, in two or three months. And it's pretty clear that, that there are some policies. And the UAW, it's not just the UAW, by the way. There's a lot of other unions out there. Wage push inflation is the nightmare scenario for Powell. Repeat this, at, repeat this again. It is the nightmare scenario for Powell. And he can't do a damn thing about uh, it. Coupled, coupled with, with $100 oil. That's, That's the nightmare right. There's nothing you can do. There's, okay, there's, so there's wait. nothing you can do. Then, then, James, let me ask you. So we're in this situation now where oil is going up again. McGlone would tell us it's just a, sort of a lower high and it's going to crash, of course. But oil is going up again. All the things you guys just described. But now we're expecting a pause at FOMC for, for September. Just right. So does this indicate that Powell is smart and is waiting to see what happened from previous rate hikes? Right. We all know it's lagging. Or... Are they so lost now that they literally break something in either direction? All no, they can do is talk about it. Yeah. yeah, I don't think he's. I don't think he's. I don't think he's. Uh, you know, he's lost. Uh, they, he, they, they have very few tools they can use, right? So he can stop QT and uh, and and take his you know the foot off the the pedal there. Um, they can pause rates, which they're doing. And see what kind of lagging effects all the five percentage points of rate hikes. It doesn't sound like a lot, but when you come from zero to five and a half, it it's a lot. Eleven hikes. <laughs> yeah. So you're starting to see bankruptcies rise. You know, 
at the same time that you've got you've got um, the unions demanding higher wages. So you're just you're 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 throwing fuel on the fire there with wages having to go up, which means decreasing margins, which means that you have less money left over to cover your interest payments. And so for, for these companies who are on the rails, you know, or just a little bit, they're, they're against the rails. If they're, they're just a little bit flying a little bit too close to the sun, it could push them over the edge. And then you, that's when you see the, the, the spike in bankruptcies. And that's what you're kind of watching for. And so he's watching for bankruptcies rising, unemployment spiking, you know, but it's all rear view mirror stuff. That's that's damage that's already been done from the that's lagging effects of the rate raises, right? So there is no good answer for him. If he raises rates into this, he, he raises them again, there's that only uh you know adds to the the probability of a of a major credit event. You know, and so he can't do that. So he pauses while oil is going up. As Dave said, oil and gas are they're integral to every single thing that we buy. You know, regardless of what just stop oil wants to say, every single piece of clothing they have, they how they got to the, the you know, the protest, uh, you know, what they ate before the protest, what they're gonna eat after the protest, that doesn't matter. Every single thing has oil and energy as as a part of that cost and and creates that so there's nothing you can do he's he's in he's in pretty much an impossible situation yeah yeah I, which I, I think means just the the simplest thing is just to pause for a long while here and and yeah. see what happens I mean, I, and that, that clearly, does make sense. it's clearly it's clear that we're above that neutral rate meaning we right. we we are decreasing demand he's decreasing demand with the the, the rates at where they are because of the cost of capital. Okay. So, and that that's clear. So he's see how long he can, he can hold it there. I mean, there's no reason for him to just spike them again. We're already above the neutral rate. Let's see where it right. goes. Right. I mean, Dave, just real quick, I know you're about to jump in, but I mean, you add into this rising oil prices, the fact that if you look savings are at historic lows and almost gone, everything that consumer saving had from, you know, the COVID bonus there little bonus check that everybody got and that credit card debt is at all time highs. Right. right? So the consumers are, consumers are struggling and it's not like you can take a loan. So consumers are struggling hard right now. And you add in higher gas prices, that only makes everything worse to your point. So, so here's the point. And there's an interesting, interesting feedback. If he raises rates, the reason raising rates is used to calm inflation is by killing aggregate demand. That's the idea, right? The idea is you hurt aggregate demand and, you know, potentially hurting aggregate demand is a very clinical term. What he's basically talking about is forcing people to have no ability to buy or spend, which generally involves some form of credit event. Uh, What does the Fed want to avoid? Large scale credit contagion. So it's it, they need to push, but not push. But the other big problem here, and it's a huge one, and you re, and I, I'm sharing the screen. I don't know if people can see it, but the, the economic data that shows consumer loans. This is, um, you know, this is uh, recent. But if you do five years, you, you could see that this is the pandemic, and now you see where we are. And if you go back to max, you can see we're all time highs. Now, this is consumer loan. That's, cre- that's credit card debt. So let's be clear. That's credit card debt that back in 2020, 
the rates on this were down around nine to 11%. And now they're up over 25 to 28%. Right. right. So that's my point. As he raises rates, what he's actually doing is causing wage push inflation because he's causing people to need more money and therefore demand more to live. So in a way, raising rates has an inflationary impact to it as well in a world where the cost of living is directly impacted by those rates. And yes, it, it, on, the, on the, the corporate side, uh, it means they have less to spend and they have less to push. Yes, 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 we understand it. But on consumer demand side, it is interesting because if you look at the average, you know, what are people going to vote on? People are going to vote based on are they better off or worse off? Well, at the end of the day, if your revolving credit line, if your home equity loan resets, if all these things are taking money from you as he raises rates, that causes people to demand more and get more strident about it. And so that is a big problem with all the union things that are going on because you can't really blame the labor unions, can't blame the workers. Their costs have gone through the roof, right? You know, we can manipulate the CPI as much as you want, but if you can't import it, and if you can't, you know, if you can't import it and if it's not in a technologically, uh, you know, if it's not something that just the tech is getting better and so prices are coming down, everything that's service oriented or made in America, uh, frankly, the prices are up dramatically higher than the, than the stated inflation rate. And, you know, things like, you know, you're educating your kids or your medical care or, you know, your rent, you know, these are things that are up higher. And then when you add to that, the fact that, wait, you know, how many people use their houses as an ATM and those revolving credit lines that are from houses, most of them, most of, of, of them reset with as interest rates they are all indexed to the prime rate. And so you, you have a, a huge impact here. <clears throat> that impact is is something that, that I'm sure he's being talked about. Right. You know, because it, 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 it is a double edged sword. And that's kind of something that people don't generally think about. Yeah. Go ahead, James. Well, I was going to, let me see if I can share my screen here. Here um, we go, guys. I'm ready for it. But I, see, see uh, this, is, this is, by the way, this is my uh, tactic for getting a free Bloomberg terminal is to get you, James, and Mike to just share your screen constantly. So I have to pay like $25,000 a month or whatever it costs these days. The problem is I'm on, I'm on Chrome and, uh, you know, and I'm like, oh, you need the permissions. Yeah. Next time we'll try it before. Let's try, we'll try it before. But um, let me see here. Let me see if I can I can get it on Chrome. I know you can do it because I'm doing it, which means it can be done. <laughs> yep. And, and Dave's probably doing it. But uh, while 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 we're discussing that, uh, and we'll go right back to that as you're trying, James. But we have to yeah. obviously mention the other part of the uh, topic, which comes from our good friend Yusko. Bitcoin's on sale. He says, but customers are running out of the store, which is a classic. Obviously, he's pointing to the having and the uh, tidal wave of cash that's going to come in when we get an ETF approval. Uh, McGlone's not here to tell us that uh, Bitcoin's going to flip nine grand. So uh, this is our chance, guys. This is our chance to uh, say bullish things about Bitcoin. Well, look, I, I, you know, you know my opinion. You know, Mike and I now have a, a Twitter-oriented uh, steak dinner bet on forty versus ten. Uh, I would have tightened the range too. I mean, I, I feel pretty good about that. <clears throat> I've wanted to go to Peter Luger's for a while, so you know. My favorite uh, place on earth. Thank you. Oh, we'll, we'll, I'm we'll, coming. We'll, I'm we'll coming, and I'm buying you both dinner. That's James, fine. Fly but it, but the, the, the point that's really interesting about what's going on with Bitcoin is, 
And, and I made this point this morning. Um, I, I tweeted it out because somebody was talking about, well, they're just going on and on about macro and this, that, and the other thing. And I basically was saying, listen, Bitcoin trades like an option on its own adoption. The reason the four-year cycles matter, the reason the halving cycles matter, yeah, there's less supply and Sure, you know, you can do a supply side only model. I think it's kind of bullshit, but whatever. But what it does show is it should the every single having we get through where the mining industry and the network strength is confirmed and things continue to go up and to the right, it more and more justifies the the vision of Bitcoin as a global store of value and it puts more and more distance between Bitcoin and other technologies trying to ever create what Bitcoin has created in terms of a global network. And, and, and technologists, and it's fascinating for something that came that was built by technologists. It's fascinating how technologists are ignorant sometimes of how network effects go. I mean, there have been many examples throughout history where the superior technology doesn't win. Many. Because people already adopted it and the marginal difference uh, in the new technology was not sufficient. It takes truly disruptive technology to displace old technologies. And, you know, everyone uses Betamax and VHS, but there are so many. It's not even funny. The reality is Bitcoin technology, yeah, okay, there's been some adaptations with ordinals, and that's actually a very good thing in many respects. I mean, I, I completely can't comprehend the Bitcoin maxis who don't like that and don't see usage of the blockchain as useful. But what's important is up and to the right, block by block, bit by bit, what's going on in the network. And every time there's a halving and every time the monetary policy of Bitcoin is proven to be reasonable, and is proven to work, uh, it creates even more momentum towards its global adoption. And right now, the market's pricing the chance of Bitcoin becoming the digital store of value globally at well less than 5%, right? And it was well less than 5%. Uh, you know, it was in a very similar, a similar place, you know, not all that long ago. And the network is dramatically stronger now. There is much more adoption. We even have the accounting rules taking the, the, the you know, for businesses out of the way. I mean, honestly, and you're, and the other thing that I pointed out a couple of weeks ago is even the IMF is saying, don't try to ban crypto because they know it'll drive it underground and make it stronger. The reality is now they want to try to co-opt it. Now, they want to control it. Yeah, I don't see any good news, thing. but it's definitely a, a capitulation on the fact that it's going not going anywhere. But what does co-opting look like? Co-opting looks like Okay, it's going to go up a lot. We just want to control it. How do they control it? There's only one way to control it is to buy it. <laughs> so what are they going to try to do? Shake people out of it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not really a conspiracy theorist on that score. I don't think that it actually works that way, but it, it, it ultimately becomes that. So the only thing that's really holding the market down right now and, and, is, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, it's fear of another, of Binance being a slightly larger FTX event. That is literally the only story. That is the overhang to the entire crypto market and Bitcoin in particular. And I frankly think it's bullshit. I mean, not necessarily because Binance isn't going to get punished, but I just don't see. And I'd love to hear Mike Alfred explain. I think that, let, let me say this. I think it is becoming more bullshit with time because the longer it takes for something to happen, if it's going to happen, the less market share Binance has, the more priced in the assumption that it will happen is there and the less impactful that news will be, right? I mean, there's a lot There's a lot going on with Binance, right? Uh, Binance, first of all, SEC ripped into Binance US over shaky asset custody. But by the way, if you guys saw, 
then, ah, oh, it's the wrong tweet. Uh, I'll have to get it. But then Binance US, uh, the SEC lost again. A judge rejected the SEC yesterday in trying to get into Binance US te uh, technology and books. But crypto hiring woes for Binance. Binance US continues. The CEO, Brian Schroeder, it's like the 15th CEO, but he left and people are leaving at every level. But that's my point. This, if this ship is sinking, everyone's already getting off. It's not going to matter by the time. And I think I saw a number as high as that it, they've gone from 80% down to 30% market share. So I, I, I think there's no way this will be bigger than FTX because FTX happened overnight. Right. There's, that's one point. And the other point is FTX had an $8 billion hole in their balance sheet. There was a ton of forced selling. They bankrupted a ton of professional investors who then had to sell their remaining assets. Forced sales is what causes things to go down. Finance, not be, people not being able to speculate might hurt a lot of altcoins where liquidity bequeaths liquidity and there's a lot of garbage. But with Bitcoin, that's not really relevant. The only thing that's relevant to Bitcoin in the Binance case is do investors have Bitcoin on Binance that's not really there? And from all accounts, I have not seen any proof that that is the case. So if there's no forced selling, then, yeah, there will be disruption to the market because professional investors are using Binance futures. Uh, Binance, the spot exchange, I think, is less and less of an issue. Yeah. The sole issue is Binance futures. Is yeah, but you hit on that, Dave, Dave what, that, that's, the, that's the problem, the uncertainty, period. The uncertainty is you cannot see what the liabilities are. Yeah, you can, you can verify the assets. But there's no way to verify the liabilities. If you can't verify the liabilities and and what they have used, like how much Bitcoin they have possibly used as collateral against them, they 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 may own that may come due. That they will have to liquidate Bitcoin in order to you know meet those obligations. That's what you can't see. And so when you have uncertainty, the you you have markets that that just trend either sideways or lower. Period. Right. That's the way it is. And that, that is exactly my point. But my point is that unlike FTX, where the known unknown, my point. <laughs> we knew, we, we didn't know. It happened overnight. And immediately when the market realized that they had replaced all the Bitcoin and Ethereum that they were holding from customer collateral with sand coins, which was bullshit, uh, it's a problem. Now, the allegation, which I've not seen proof of, and, and I think is extremely important to understand whether it's true or not true, is that they've replaced that Binance has replaced it with BNB. I mean, they, they're explicitly denying that. And, and to me, that's the central question. I don't know the answer to it, but provided that the Bitcoin and Ether that are that are posted and, and stable coins that are posted as collateral on Binance Future are still there, then even if the even if the, you know it gets shut down overnight, it would cause disruption. But right. that could be a mass buying opportunity in Bitcoin and Ether. It could be, well, not necessarily Ether, because if all coins all get quiesced for a six-month period as people sort out what the next market will be, uh, you know, Ether, obviously, it's one of their big use cases. But Bitcoin, for sure, there's no impact. I mean, keep in mind, the biggest rally off the close, the biggest rally we have seen, like, you know, in recent times, was literally when BitMEX died. BitMEX had 80% market share of, of Bitcoin derivatives, 80%. And went to, you know, down to less than 10% almost overnight after they kicked the, you know, after they pulled the plug during the, Mar the March rally, the Mar March failure. Nobody right. cared. It didn't matter. 
because anything you want to say and, about Arthur. And everyone loves Arthur. I had lunch with him in Singapore oh, uh, like three days ago. He's the most popular person uh, at that conference. He, he's freaking brilliant. I mean, I was one of the first people when he went to Substack to subscribe because he's brilliant. Love reading his stuff. I mean, I learn every single time I read his stuff. I'd love to meet him. But, uh, you know, one of these days if we're in the same place, you can introduce me. But in any case, Arthur, uh, it was a it was a group. It was a group lunch. And uh, and I'm not friendly, but we did sit right together and he threw a hilarious party that people were crawling through the woods to sneak into and ran out of uh, liquor in 45 minutes. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> the point is that BitMEX didn't lose customer collateral. And so therefore, there was no forced selling. And therefore, the right. rally, despite its demise, was incredibly sharp. If there was a Binance disaster, and I'm not saying it's going to happen, I have no knowledge of it. I'm not wishing ill on anybody. But if it happens and there's no forced selling from collateral, the rally, the, the God candle that will result at the end of that will be epic. And that's even without the ETF being approved. We want, if you add that to the ETF being approved, you could, it could be ridiculous. And, and all the people who are patiently buying will lose their patience. This is I'm not talking about a you know, three or five thousand dollar rally where it's only speculators and there's no spot buying, which is collapses immediately, which we've now seen twice on rumors. I'm talking about the overhang and the reason that I'm not allowing my investment fund to allocate more to Bitcoin disappears at the same time as it's very clear there's going to be demand drivers, too. So, you know, when you look at it, that's the biggest unknown. If someone knew for sure that that Binance either A, did have a hole in their customer money and there will be forced selling, or B, that there isn't, you could be, you will be very rich by betting on that. Now, I obviously do not know that answer, uh, but people need to understand that is a very good deal. But I still think, though, Dave, I still think that going back to the beginning of the, the show, I think there's this huge overhang of, of uncertainty in the economy, you know, and so we're starting to did if you if so going back to your, your god candle uh comment yeah if if there wasn't an, uh, some sort of overhang from binance and people believe that we we're, we're going to have this goldilocks scenario of a soft landing we would see a god candle i think you're right if you if that got resolved but i think it, it, people are starting to realize that uh the soft landing narrative might not really be true and you're you're starting to see see just hints of that so it with when you have market malaise uh that's when these disruptions happen i think that bitcoin as much as anything is going to be susceptible to that kind of downturn and so we just have to be aware of that do i am i bullish long term hugely bullish you know i'm going to be buying all the way down if, if it does and i'll take up op that opportunity with or without a binance event and so we just have to recognize that that's still out there if we have a spike of unemployment, we have a we have some sort of credit event. It will get hit too. Period. Um, trying to time that. Good luck. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I I always say that. Look, I my macro views throughout history have been my timing on macro has been. I, I, I really hate doing this when he's not here, but it's just too funny. My timing on macro views has been as as accurate as Malone's has been in terms of timing. That's not everyone. I mean, you got to be, you have to be Michael Burry and his one in a hundred shot to be accurate. Even then he almost, he almost went out of business because he was way early. Right. I was shorting MBMA, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac and all that stuff. 
in 2006. I was totally right, but it went on 18, I was 18 months early and got stopped out of my positions for a variety of reasons. So I mean, it lose money, but I didn't make money either. Uh, despite calling, you know, effectively the house of cards. What the hell I lost a lot of money. So, I mean, I, I, I understand I'm I, I directionally right. But look, I, I don't want anything I say isn't investing advice other than the only piece of investing advice I will ever give on this show. And I always say it. Don't use leverage on an 80 vol asset, because if Bitcoin is an option, as I say, using leverage on options is a prescription for disaster. At best, it's a roulette wheel. Uh, at worst, it's a lottery. And, you know, do you really want to invest by buying lottery tickets? Uh, I think not. You know, it's it's not a smart idea. That's the only advice I give. Everything else is observational. And observational, I mean, the demand for Bitcoin in the 25 to 26 range is, is there, is significant. There are resting bids. There are patient buyers. And the speculators at this point are exhausted. Every time it starts moving up, they get they get fooled. And so we don't have a lot of that. So we're kind of stuck in this range until there's new news to digest. And the news that people are mostly focusing on these days are the two pieces of news we've talked about is, are, is the Fed gonna get, is gonna try to force a credit event? Remember, we talk about credit events in clinical terms, Well, what is a credit event? A credit event is an event where institutions are forced to sell assets. And when you start selling, forced to sell assets, what do you sell? Well, you sell what's most liquid. What goes down the most? Why do correlations go to one in a market crash? Because it causes forced selling and people to sell the most liquid stuff, often the stuff they most want to own. And so that's why correlations right. go one. That's right. We've so talked about before. If you haven't if you haven't been on a desk when this happens, it, it, a hedge fund desk and an investment committee, if you it, it's it's mind it, it's staggering how fast it happens. You walk into that trading floor. You see red across the board. You know that you're going to have some sort of margin call somewhere in your book because look, if you're if you're a hedge fund, you're at a prime broker, you're running on margin. That's just it's just reality. There's no other way to pay the prime brokers. It's not that you're you're over levered. It's just that you're you're running on on some sort of a margin, you know, a facility. And so you look at your book and you say, just as Dave said, you say, just sell twenty percent of everything. Get twenty percent of everything. Get me out, and then we'll we'll, we'll step back and uh, make sure that we, you know, we're at least liquid. So at the end of the day, I, I'm not having some sort of uh, liquidation that's forced that I don't want to happen. Right. right. And so that's a big deal. So Scott, the other thing that's important to understand is a credit event virtually guarantees not just margins for people who are leveraged, but also redemptions. People pull their money out of funds. I mean, you know, we have an entire generation that's lived that's been living off of the wealth effect. People start getting really nervous when you know their nest egg is that you know is like you know it, it's when their nest egg are, is in the stock market and that's what they've been living off of. You know, selling small amounts, you know, to live because there are a lot of people who've been doing that. And all of a sudden, if your net worth starts collapsing, what happens? Well, the whole thing pinwheels, and that's exactly. You know, the Fed doesn't would actually probably wants a, a 20 percent correction. What they don't want is a debt spiral. And so they're you know, already in one. Right, James? They're already in one. There's no, well, there's no way out. And we're it's, it's begun. That's oh, the no, there, there's a way out. There's a way out. There's what? a way out that that traders are well aware of. Can you uh, see it now? It's called, yeah. it's called a mass devaluation event. What, in what world? 
I mean, truly, in what world is it okay that this is our federal debt, this is our consumer debt, this our savings rate. You notice we're where it is. in the one screen. I think the way you shared it was probably just the uh, that one tab. So you'd have to switch. Oh, uh, you have to show it each yeah. tab. Okay, hold on. So we'll do that. So that right? We lost versus, you. Ver, no, versus, we lost your screen share. Here we go. I'm going to teach everybody. You go to present. Okay, okay I'm going to take that off. You go to present. And then you go to share screen. And then up top, there's Chrome tab, window, entire screen, do window. This is for everybody, not just for us three guys when you're streaming. <laughs> so if you do window, you can click between tabs. You see it? There you go. Yeah, okay, yeah okay. see, I can see your tabs now up top. So there's consumer loans. Yep. yep. So you had federal debt, consumer loans. Here's a personal savings rate. You can see it's down, like it's down to the levels it was back in 2000. And eight, okay. At the same time, you've got corporate bankruptcies rising at a faster rate in, than it has in years, right? So, in what in, in in what reality is this okay? How is this how is this going to well, work? Well, out? Keep in mind something: if he raises rates and the long end goes up, then those charts get worse. Every right? single one of them. Every, Every single one, one of them. The, the federal debt spikes. This is what, you know, yes, Scott, we're in a debt spiral. Why? Because we're operating in deficit. Why? Because we, we, we spend too much. Clearly that is inflationary in and of itself. So it just feeds on itself. So you have, you have, we our our average interest rate is about 1.5% on, on all this debt that we have $33 trillion of debt every single time a piece of debt matures, now we have to reissue it at somewhere between four and a half and 5%. So, 31%, 31%, I believe, is the number that's within the next six months or year of US debt that's coming up to be refinanced and is going from 1% to what, five, six, seven? Yeah, one and a half, one, one and a quarter, one and a half to, to 5%, uh, you know, and and every single one of those investors that doesn't reinvest that capital that of that bond that has matured, the the treasury has to borrow that money and issue more debt. And that's what we're that's what you're seeing happening. So you see you see debt matures. Part of that money that when that's matured, it goes back into auction and they and they buy more debt, you know, just be, or it goes into the open market. But part of it just it, they have to just issue more debt and and at higher interest rates, your interest expense now this year is going to be over a trillion dollars on interest expense for, for people who it's hard to conceptualize what that is. We spend about 800 to 850 billion dollars on the entire military complex a year and. Which is five times, which is more than the next five to 10. I don't remember the stat, but like, but than any other countries combined. So put it, so put it, so put it in in context. It's like, if you spend, uh, you know, say you spend $5,000 a year on food and then you're spending about $7,500 a year, $7,000 a year on, on, you know, on interest on your credit card debt or Put in the same terms, eight hundred dollars a year on food, and now a thousand dollars a year on, on interest on credit card. Like it's just mind-boggling. You're spending more money on interest than you are on something that you know. But put it put another way, which is what I've been talking about all year on this show. 
the Fed desperately needs to engineer the long end of the curve downwards. And the yes. long end of the curve means people- That means rate cuts. That means, that means something. Uh, <laughs> it's 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 yield. Yeah, curve. they're going to engineer it. They're going to yeah, engineer, they're control. engineer it the way Japan engineered it, and that's what they're going to do. What it means is quantitative easing on the long end, and 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 don't be surprised if they're quantitative ease on the long end at the same time as they're as they hold rates above above uh, accommodative levels. Yes. The short end. Do yes. not be surprised if they do that because I think they need to do that. There's only so much money they can pull out of the roof. That, that right. And so all they're doing right now is they, they just keep issuing T-bills, you know, and these are expiring who's buying them? a month to three months. It's, it's, it's money coming out of the reverse repo facility. But who's buying rich, them? Rich people. And piles on it. Read, read Arthur Hayes' stuff. That's what he's talking about. And that money, that interest. But rich people haven't bought a trillion dollars of new debt in the last three months, right? It's banks. It's banks using. It's banks buying reverse the, repo. The, yeah, they're 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 taking money out of the reverse repo rather than just pushing money to the Fed and getting reverse repo interest rate. They're getting a better interest rate on T bills, and so they're just re-upping those T bills. Everything. And so you've seen about six or seven hundred billion dollars being drawn out of the reverse repo facility, which is just extra capital that's sitting idle at banks. They put on the Fed to get interest every single day. And so instead of leaving it there, they're pulling it out and putting it into a little bit better rate on the T-bills. But they can only do so much of that, right? There's only so many banks that have that are sitting on that capital. So like Dave said, at some point, the Fed, the, the, the Treasury, excuse me, is going to have to issue longer dated paper. And when they do that, who's going to buy it? Who's going to buy that longer dated paper? The Fed. The Fed. It ain't going to be China. I mean, look, think of it this way. How many people were were complaining about Japan's lost decade, yada, yada, yada? You can complain about it a lot, but the fact of the matter is... Just yada, yada, yada. America's lost two decades coming, yada, yada, yada. 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 (laughs) No, no, I'm not saying that. That's part, Dave. You should, yeah. Yada, yada, yada is solid, though, yeah. Here's the the, the punchline. The punchline is... You can make you can make fun of them. You can say a lot of things, but the fact is, Japan has been able to kick the can down the road on their debt spiral for thirty years, despite having a debt to GDP that's double ours nominally now, and a, and a population that's aging even faster. And so, you know, if, if you're a policymaker who cares about your job and what people think about you now, the most human thing to do is to kick the can down the road so it's the next guy's problem, not mine. And, you know, people want to do the right thing. Some people do. I think Powell genuinely does. I have genuine respect for the man. I think that at some point he's going to realize, listen, I got to kick this can down the road because I am toast. They they are leaving me alone. I don't want to do it. And he's going to, you know, he's sort of in financial policy, sort of like, you know, uh, uh, Zach Wilson was left alone against the Cowboys pass rush. I mean, it's like, you know, what what the hell am I going to do? He's terrible, but that wasn't his fault. Yeah, it, 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 he was running for his life the whole time. I mean, Powell literally is standing alone against the entirety of the rest of the government, the fiscal side of the government, the regulatory side of the government, and even the job. While while, and Dave, did you hear Scott talking about, uh, you know, the, the White House cheering on the UAW? I mean, yeah. like. <laughs> it's insane. It's like, he, he, I'm telling you, I, I think it's crazy. At some point, the natural thing for him to do 
is within the policy committee and say, listen, you know, we're going to keep rates high enough so that we're going to try to quell consumer demand, but we're going to do QE, which we all know what that will do. That will spur assets, that will help support the asset markets at the same time as decreasing federal uh, debt expenditures because we need to do it. I mean, I just don't see he has a choice. I mean, he'll never say it. They won't talk about it. But they'll just do it because they have no. But to your point, if the Treasury is just creating trillions in T bills, then what? I mean, fiscal policy can't. Uh, the monetary policy can't account for what's happening on the fiscal side, right? I mean, I mean, ha- yeah, that's money printing, one way or another, right? And he's trying to tighten and trying to. Yeah. yeah, but they're operating with separate. They're, they're operating with separate Mandates. objectives, right? Yeah. So the Treasury has to. They have no choice, but they have got to, to pay the bills. Facilitate you try to fund government, the government spending. Exactly, they right. facilitate government spending. Period. And the Fed is is only trying to reinforce the strength of the dollar. They're trying to reinforce the you know the confidence in the U.S. currency, so that the Treasury can pay its to pay the government's bills. It they're in they're operating separately, you know. And and the Fed, like you just said. And you guys are, I 100% agree that, you know, Powell is running for his life here. But at the end of the, at the end of the day, period, end of sentence there, he is going to do what is best for his legacy. And, of course, and- it's all he cares about. You can tell. I mean, how many times does he like have people invoked Volker when talking about right. Powell? He needs his Volker moment. But, He's going to pull it off. Way, the only thing where those places agree on is they would strongly prefer to have measuring sticks, things that make it obvious what they're doing not exist, or at least uh, not, it, it, or at least be different, right? So and they do obscure it. They do obscure it with, with the faulty CPI measures. With yeah, they do a lot of that stuff. Yeah, just recalculate you how know, you calculate like, the numbers. Great. You, yeah. Powell knows that unemployment doesn't spike until we hit a recession. He knows that. Yet he 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 will again. He will refer to unemployment being very low right now, so there's no recession risk. He, he will say that again even though he knows in his mind that what he's trying to do is spike unemployment, period. That's what needs to be done. He needs unemployment to spike in order to quell demand because right. he, it's the only side of the equation that he can that he. But can the narrative, right, but the narrative is soft landing, no recession. So, I mean, well, you're saying well, he, they're well, just lying. You know, they're lying well, because yeah, he has to cause the recession, so he doesn't want no recession, to get right. jobs, to get unemployment to rise, to be able to pivot, to crash the market, and then recover. I mean, it's it's so ludicrous that Yellen would would she would refer to every single problem and and you know on that tweet that you showed at the beginning of the show, every single issue we're, that we're facing and say, oh no, we've got this. That's good. No it's good. We're just gonna it's pop. That Fine. Yeah. And it, look, it, it is what it is, but that's one of the reasons why they don't want objective metrics. So you know, Greenspan used to obsess about gold. And a lot of the other Fed governors like were, well, why do you care? And the fact of the matter was when, if you look at the history, when gold it, did its sustained rally from the, the, the 400s, you know, whatever, uh, mm-hmm. to its, its the 2011, you know, 2000, what was that about? Well, that was about, <laughs> well, we know what we went through. We went through the monetary printing. We went through all the stuff and basically just said, okay, I don't care. You know, the, let the gold bugs know the truth, let the gold bugs measure it, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. The same thing is likely happening with Bitcoin. Only Bitcoin is global, not just the U.S. 
and its adherents are even more eccentric in their minds, and it's a much smaller market. And so you get all of that, but I think it's pretty clear that, that, you know, people say, well, you know, Elizabeth Warren's a Luddite. She's trying to suppress this stuff. Oh, no. I mean, she's smart. She understands that Bitcoin is a measuring stick. And she understands that if federal government fiscal irresponsibility is to continue, they need to make sure that they can engineer against all the measuring sticks. That and she understands that she needs the fiscal uh, irresponsibility to continue to have her job, period. Right. And so that is a very big deal. And people ignore the political process of what's going on at their peril. But the truth is that, that there is a reason why there's institutional bias in the United States against crypto. And by the way, there is yeah, a this reason, is the reason why there's institutional bias for crypto in emerging economies all around the world, because they see it as an opportunity to help, uh, you know, basically get out from under U.S. financial hegemony. I mean, don't don't kid yourself. The re, one of the, it, yes, it is true that that token and and because we've seen it, we had three people out there. We see it overseas. Bananas. All of the demand for our services is overseas. U.S. you know the, the U.S. money it feels trapped. People are are annoyed. Yada yada yada. But make no mistake, there is the U.S. today is fifty percent of the world's investable assets. There is a huge fight going on, and I do not believe that de-dollarization is the way they're going to win because the dollar is still the best of a bunch of bad fiat currencies. But I think there are a lot of people outside of the United States who understand that there is a, a great reset going on and there is potential in the digital economy and that could be massive and they're lining up to do it and, and understanding the US isn't gonna get cooperation from these governments because these governments really see it as a ticket for them to actually do better. And that, that is that is very important. Which which I think is actually like maybe a good way to sort of conclude on that on that point is that we used to expect that the world would follow the United States lead. And I think that's what the United States was expecting, that they would set some framework for regulation, get the rest of the world in line. And in this case, the rest of the world just said F you and moved on without them. And now the United States is totally stuck. They failed to kill it, they failed to really suppress the price, and now it's moving on everywhere else. And the only people that will obviously get hurt are America and Americans. I mean, I, I wish I didn't agree with you. I really, really wish I didn't. But I have to agree with you because I know that what you're saying is true. It's yeah. sad. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens this election, who who comes out on what side. Um, I think 99% of, of politicians are going to come out on the, on the wrong side of this. But, um, you know, the, the next election, I think, uh, after this one is – is going to be entirely different because of the damage that they're going to cause in, uh, in you know, in using the central banks and fiat currency. Period. I was just checking if uh, Elizabeth Warren was up for re-election in 2024. I believe she is. She is. Oh, yeah. Good news. So. Good news. Yeah. Uh, she, she ain't gonna lose. But yeah. Oh, it's nice to have hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hope is a terrible thing if it's uh, if it's misplaced. Though, all right, guys, that's all I got. I got to run. Thank you so much. Uh, it was fun to having having the three of us. It's always interesting when we mix up the uh, groups, how the conversation leads. James, it didn't even get light for you over there. I guess that's there's just no right. window. It's still just living in the dark, man. <laughs> all right, guys, thank you so much, everybody. I will be back tomorrow. See you at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Peace, bye, guys. Yeah.